the most. Um, but for me, two of the things I love about Jesus, among many, is his wisdom. To, to see as Jesus interacts with people, particularly those who don't like him, Jesus just has this, this supernatural wisdom that I just hope that I can grow in uh, and his ability to deal with others. Uh, another thing I really love about Jesus uh, is his ability to tell a great story. Um, uh, there, was no, there was no internet, uh, there was no television, it was an oral culture, which means that things were passed down not primarily through writing, um, but through telling stories. And Jesus tells a great story. And so as, as we come to this passage in the Gospel of Mark this morning, we see of the, the, these two qualities of Jesus coming together. We see his, uh, his heavenly wisdom and his wonderful ability to tell an earthly story with a heavenly truth. And, and these come together in Mark, um, and we're going to begin uh, in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. So I want to encourage you to, uh, to turn there, Mark uh, chapter 11, and, uh, and we're going to begin in verse 27. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. And we're going to see uh, Jesus and his wisdom in action as he tells a wonderful, powerful story uh, to convey a heavenly truth. So uh, Mark chapter 11, beginning verse 27. Now, let me remind us, uh, I was not able to be here last Sunday. Uh, I was speaking at a church up north. So I'm not sure if this has been mentioned, but just as a reminder, this is the last week of Jesus' life. So maybe that's been mentioned. If not, it's important. So as we, as we read this morning um, in Mark 11 going into to 12, Jesus only has a few days left on earth, and he's going to be crucified. And of course, he knows that. And so it, it, gives, an, it gives a weightiness to what he's saying, right? Because he knows these are some of the last stories he's going to tell, and then he's going to be gone. Are you with me? All right, so there's a weightiness to that. Okay, Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Now, they arrived again in Jerusalem, meaning Jesus and his disciples. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus uh, was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. And by what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus replied, well, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Now, they discussed it among themselves and said, yikes. That's my translation, by the way. Yikes. If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, and they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. And here's a story that Jesus tells. And it's an earthly story with a heavenly truth. Now, a man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, 
beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Well, then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent still another, and that one they killed. And he sent many others. Some of them they beat, and others they killed. Now, he had one left to send, a son, his son, whom he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Greek, it would almost be like, certainly they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. This is the son. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and it is true. And Jesus, we stand in awe of just your wisdom and seeing how you interact with, with others, Lord. And uh, just in these next few moments, as we just study your word, we uh, just pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our mind. Lord, we cannot understand this book without you, Holy Spirit. And so would you open our mind and give us uh, understanding. We, uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would soften our hearts, Holy Spirit, for we don't want to simply be hearers of your word, but we want to be doers. And so we pray that you would use your word this morning to, to mold and shape and transform our heart that we might be more like you, Jesus. And so speak to us through this story we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, another example of the religious leaders uh, trying to trip Jesus up. And, and they do this over and over again in, during his ministry, three years of his ministry. Uh, he, he's just, have you ever had a pebble in your shoe that you couldn't get out? Anyone? It's not a piece of glass. It's, it's not a needle. It's just a, a pebble. But how irritating is it? And for three years, Jesus is a pebble in the shoe of the religious leaders. Uh, these super hyper-spiritual religious leaders and experts in the Old Testament. And, and Jesus is constantly pushing back and, and taking things in directions they never anticipated, and, and they're just continually annoyed by this. And so they're always looking for opportunities to discredit Jesus. I, I can remember uh, several years ago now here in Birmingham, I was invited to, uh, to speak at a, at a breakfast and there were about 100, 150 people at this breakfast. And I was invited to be on a panel. There were six of us on this panel. And people in the audience had presented questions ahead of time uh, to us. And then some were just asked from the audience. And so uh, there was like um, I'm a, a vicar, and he was, you know, fully kitted out with his stuff. And, and then there was a Methodist kitted out and a Catholic priest. You got to the end, and you had me, the Baptist, in blue jeans and a T-shirt. And, uh, and I'll never forget one of the questions that a gentleman asked, and, and they just began to tell there was probably a, a, a substantial difference in my theology than most of the other people on the panel. And so 
um, I kind of got singled out a bit more. And this man stands up in the, uh, in the audience. He says, I have a question. So the moderator goes over, gives him a microphone. And he says, it's for the Baptist guy. And I said, um, I said, yeah. And he said, surely you don't believe Adam and Eve were real people, do you? Now, what a great way to ask the question. That's not a setup, is it? Surely you don't believe, right? He was looking for an opportunity to, to call me out, to, to maybe embarrass me. And I, I remember just like, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. And I, I didn't have this bit of wisdom, but the Lord did give me something. I, I did say, well, how many of you in here believe that Jesus was a real person? Raise your hand. By the way, if everyone in here, raise your hand if you believe Jesus was real. Yeah? Like, okay. Uh, if you believe Mary was real, raise your hand. What about, do you believe Mary's mom and dad were real? Raise your hand. What about grandparents? Great-grandparents, right? And so this is what I asked him. I said, when you look at the lineage of Jesus and you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, here's my question. You've just admitted Jesus was real and his mom was real and his grandparents were real. Where in the genealogy do the real people become pretend people? So what do you mean? I said, well, I, I haven't been in the UK long, but I don't know how it works here, but I can tell you how it works in America, and that is real people have real babies, but pretend people don't have pretend sex with real people and have halfway babies. That'll be a different class afterwards, amen? <laughs> They're seeking to call him out, to embarrass him, to discredit him, to maybe make fun of him for believing the Bible is real. And so Jesus answers them with a story. Now, this is uh, Simon Spencer will appreciate this. This is the cast of characters, Brother Simon. This is for all of our Shakespearean uh, people. Uh, you need to snap a picture of this or burn it into your brain because this story is not going to make sense unless you get the cast of characters, all right? Because it's a parable. It's, it's a made-up story, but it's, it's, a, it's, a heavenly, it's an earthly story, heavenly truth, so this is the cast of characters. This is who's in the story. So take a look with me. We're going to see in the story a vineyard planter, right? And so he says in verse 1, a man planted a vineyard. Who is the man? That man in the story represents God the Father, all right? He represents God the Father. He, he plants a vineyard. A vineyard is where you grow grapes, right? The vineyard is going to represent the nation of Israel, the Jews, God's chosen people, right? Let's don't forget that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's theirs before he's ours, right? He's theirs before he's ours. He, whenever we see the word Christ, the, the actual word is Messiah. He is the chosen one for the nation of Israel, okay? So we have the planter, the vineyard. Now we have farmers, right? And so uh, we see here um, in, uh, in verse 1, he says, a, uh, a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall up around it dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, all right? The farmers, uh, they're also going to be referred to as the tenants. They are the religious leaders. They are the people God that Jesus is speaking to. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the experts in the law, they are the religious leaders. Now, they're the ones Jesus is telling the story to, all right? Because don't miss how offensive this is going to be. And then we see the servants, right? We, we're going to see in a minute that the, the, the father, right? God the father, the one who owns the vineyard, is going to keep sending servants. And these servants are going to represent the faithful 
prophets and priests of the nation of Israel. Most of our Old Testament is made up of writings by prophets, right? Faithful prophets. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Nahum, Malachi, all these men who wrote, who went to God's people and were faithful to God in his message. All right. And then we're going to see the son. He's going to send his son and that son represents Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to see at the very end is significant. It's one little word. It's the word others. And others means Gentiles. If you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile. So would all the Gentiles in the room raise your hand? Whoop, whoop, right? That's you, Ben, unless there's something I don't know about, right? So, um, so mazel tov. So we're, uh, we're, we're all Gentiles, okay? So uh, we're going we're gonna to simply learn four wonderful truths about who God is based on this story, right? So here they are, just four very simple things. Number one, we see this, that in the parable of the vineyard, we witness the patience of God. In the parable of the vineyard, we witness the patience of God. Now, don't miss this. The, the, the man who owns the vineyard has went, he's bought the land, He's, he's put up all the infrastructure for the land. He's built a watchtower. He, he's dug ditches. He's put up the trestle. He has invested loads into this endeavor, right? And, and so um, he then rents it out, right? It's like tenant farming. He rents it out to these farmers. But who still owns the vineyard? The, the man who planted it. The man who planted it owns the vineyard. The farmers are just working the land for him, and he's going to pay them for it, but then he'll take a percentage, he'll take a profit because he owns the land. And so this is the reason he sends the servants, to collect a portion of the income, okay? And so uh, look what happens. He sends the servants, and, and, and what happens to the servant? Look at your Bible. A man planted a vineyard. He does all this, right? And at harvest time, verse 2, at harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants, to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Is, is, is it within his right to do that? Yeah, he owns the vineyard. He owns it. And so he sends a servant and says, hey, go get some grapes and bring them back for us, right? He owns them. But when the servant shows up, look what happens in verse 3. But they seize the servant, right? They beat him and send him away empty-handed. And then look at this verse on the screen, verses 4 and 5. Because... Uh, at that point, at that point, stay with me, the man who owns the vineyard sends a servant, go get some grapes, bring them back. Servant comes back, has no grapes, right? The owner says, where are the grapes? I sent you, they wouldn't give me any. What do you mean they wouldn't give me any? They wouldn't give me any, and then they threatened me with physical violence, and they shoved me, and they pushed me, and, and uh, they wouldn't give me anything. Now, at that moment, would it been within the rights of the man who owned the vineyard to go fire all of the farmers, fire all of those folks, hire new people and start over? Absolutely. Could he have even legally taken them to court because they're now withholding from him his property? He could have taken them to court. He could have had them arrested. He could have fired them. But watch what he does. Watch what he does. He sends another servant. And then he sends another servant. And so look here, verses 4 and 5. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. And he sent many others, 
and some of them they beat, and others they killed. Don't miss this. He, he just keeps sending servant after servant after servant. And they're beaten and killed and beaten and killed. Now, this is where it's important because this is what Jesus is saying. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying that this vineyard is the nation of Israel. And for centuries, God the Father has been sending you prophet, 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 and these prophets have been spent, sent to you to declare the truth and to reveal the truth and to preach to you. And you have killed the prophets. You have murdered the prophets. And the Bible is clear that the blood of the prophets is on the nation of Israel. And so it's hard for us to get this. Jesus is saying this to their face. He's saying, you killed the men of God. God has been sending men to you for centuries that you may know him and love him and follow him. And all you've done in return, all you've done to say thank you is you've taken them and killed them. Bold. Why? Why would God keep sending prophet after prophet? And here's the reason why. And we see it in 2 Peter, verses 8 and 9 in chapter 3. Look at this, guys. But do not forget this one thing. And, and Peter's answering the question, why hasn't Jesus returned? Jesus is coming back. Why hasn't he returned? He says this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And this is precious. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Jesus is coming back, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is Say the word, patient with who? You, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I believe with all my heart that, that the clear, absolute teaching of this book is that Jesus one day is coming back to this earth, that he will walk again on this earth as he did before. The Old Testament said he would come, and he did. The New Testament says he will come again, and he will. I can't tell you when, but I know this much. He's coming back. And so here's the question. What's the delay? Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? And this verse answers it because he still wants more people to be saved. He, he doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Like he wants more and more people to know him and to love him. He hasn't come back yet because he wants your next door neighbor to know him. He hasn't come back yet because he wants your coworker to love him. He hasn't come back yet because he wants your classmates to enjoy him. He is holding off. He is patient so that more and more people have an opportunity to know and love him. He is a patient God. He is a patient God. Amen. Are you glad that God doesn't run out of patience with you? Yeah, right? We would all be in trouble, right? Uh, do not answer this question out loud. But man, is, is there a sin or a temptation that you continually wrestle against and you just find yourself giving into that thing and you've prayed a thousand times, Lord, this will be the last time. Lord, I promise I will not do it again. I promise, Lord, it won't happen again. Within a week, it happens again. Aren't you glad that the Lord is patient? Amen. The Lord is patient with us, his people. We see that in the story. He has been patient with the nation of Israel. 
because he loves them. Secondly, uh, we see this in the parable of the vineyard. We witness the patience of God, but secondly, we witness the love of God. We witness the love of God. He has sent all the servants. The servants have been beaten. Some of them have been killed. And then he says this. He says, he had one left to send, a son. I think a better translation would be the son. He had one left to send, the son, whom he loved. God the Father has loved the Son from etern- for eternity within the relationship of the Trinity, perfect love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He had one left to send whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my Son. And Jesus is saying, look, to you the religious leaders, to you the nation of Israel, God the Father has sent prophets for hundreds and hundreds of years and you have disregarded them and in some cases killed them, and yet Jesus uh, was sent. I've been sent, right? He's saying that God hasn't given up on you, and now he sent not just a servant, but a son. And here in the story, the owner of the vineyard is thinking, certainly they won't mistreat my son. Certainly they'll know the ramifications of that, and yet we know what happens. Think about this. Jesus is saying that the the Father has sent prophets to you. You've rejected them and in some cases killed them. But has God given up on you? No. So now God has sent the best he has, and the best he has is his son. Uh, We see this in a really familiar verse, don't we? Uh, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so what? Say the word. Loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He says the father loves his people so much. He sent his one and only son. I've always found it interesting, John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16 are quite similar uh, 1 John 3.16 uh, is not coming up for some reason. But it, there it is. Uh, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Right? Both verses connect the love of God to the sending of his son. The love of God to the sending of his son. And so in this parable, we see the patience of God. Like God keeps sending these prophets but then we see the love of God and that God proves his love for us by what? Look what he says. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Uh, Grant was mentioning earlier about um, have we ever been angry with God and what did that look like and feel like? I would ask you this. Have you ever questioned the love of God? And God, if you really loved me, why, why? Why this? God, if you really cared about me, explain this. And sometimes, I think in my humanness anyways, I might be tempted to doubt God's love. The Bible says whenever we question, whenever we doubt God's love, and we don't always feel it, do we? We don't always emotionally feel it. But whenever we doubt, look what he says. This is how we know. You want to know that God loves us? 
that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Whenever I begin to doubt the love of God, I need to look no further than the Calvary. Now look at that old rugged cross. And God's love for me was settled on the cross. And if ever I doubt his love, I look no further than the cross. And I remind myself that greater love has no man than he lays down his life for another. And Jesus is looking at the religious leaders and he is proclaiming to them, God has been patient with you and God loves you. And how do I know he loves you? Because he has sent me and I'm standing before you. So in the parable, we see the patience of God. We see the love of God. But thirdly, we see this, that in the parable of the vineyard, we witness the judgment of God. We witness the judgment of God. Uh, he, uh, what do they do to the son? Well, it says in verse 7, the tenant said to one another, this is the heir, this is the son. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Look at verse 8. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, there's a word of, uh, there's a prophetic word here. Jesus is basically telling them what they're about to do in less than seven days. Now, had they already plotted to kill Jesus? Yes, they've already plotted to kill him. And this is another way, by the way, Jesus is looking at them and saying, I know what you're about to do. I know what you're up to, right? You can't hide it. I know what you're up to. I know your secret meetings and schemes and scams. I know what you're up to. And so in this story, the son is killed and cast out as if he's worthless. Uh, you, you may already know this, but, but where Jesus was crucified, Golgotha, it was, it was actually the trash heap. It was the rubbish heap. That's where they crucified people, was at the rubbish heap. Because then when they pulled the body down, they just pushed it over into the rubbish heap with all the other dead animals and rubbish. It wasn't this lovely, we, we see beautiful pictures of like a hill and a sunset and a cross. It, it, was at, it literally was at the Hip. It was at the rubbish heap. And, and so he says, you, they killed the son and then cast him out of the vineyard. He's, he's nothing but rubbish, right? And so um, look what then he says um, in verse 9. In verse 9 uh, says this, What then will the owner of the vineyard do? You've killed his servants, you've beaten his servants, and now you've killed his son and thrown him out as he will come and kill those tenants. He'll come and kill those tenants. It, it, it's not a topic we like to talk about a lot in church. It's not something I like to reflect on in my devotional time, to be quite frank. But judgment is not only uh, inevitable, it's promised. And, and sometimes I can become so enamored with Jesus the Lamb that I forget about Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is coming to judge the world. And so he says in the parable of the vineyard, we witness the judgment of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says this, uh, for we must all, say that word, all, right? Every person, all 7 billion of us on the planet earth and all the billions that went before us and might come after us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or 
bad. We look in our New Testament and we see Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. You get to the book of Revelation and you see the line of the tribe of Judah. And he looks very different. And he is coming to judge those. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says it uh, this way. And just as it appointed to man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Uh, It's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. Um, unless Jesus comes back, everyone in here will die. Unless he comes back before we do, pretty much everybody in here will die, right? But this will happen whether we die or not. All of us will face God in judgment. And we will either face him clothed in our own self-righteousness or we'll stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And and so sometimes I, I think we have to remember that God being judge, it doesn't make him bad. It's because he's good. His goodness demands judgment. So I'm reading a book right now. It's really, really good. It's about the Nuremberg trials. These are the trials that took place immediately after World War II, where it was primarily all of the, uh, the Nazi uh, political and military leaders who went on trial for crimes against humanity. And, um, and so the trials took place in Nuremberg, Germany. If you've ever been there, uh, you can go and see the courthouse is still there where the trials took place. And, uh, and this is a biography that I'm reading, and it is fascinating. Um, the, uh, the allies, the British, the American, the French, the Russians, determined that, that it was right and good that they appoint two chaplains who would do gospel ministry among these Nazi leaders. And so the Catholic Church because the way the Catholic Church works, they just appointed a, a priest and he went. Because Protestants work a bit different, they, they needed a volunteer. And so they, they were asking for two things. They needed a volunteer who uh, could speak German, and they needed a volunteer who was Lutheran, because that's the state church in Germany. But here's what they decided. They would not require it. They would ask for volunteers and as, as the word went out in the United States Army, only one person said yes. Um, and his name was Henry Garricky. And uh, he was already retired. He was in his 50s. He had retired from the Army. He was back home in the Midwest. And he was asked to. He prayed about it. And he said yes. And this book is a biography. And it is absolutely fascinating because a lot of it is from his diary. And so he's meeting daily with men like Goering who was over the Luftwaffe. I mean, he's, he's meeting with all of these men, most of them who have already been sentenced to death. And, and, and he, he talks about in the autobiography how the challenge of presenting the gospel to men who know they're dying in the context of there is a good, good God, and yet you must pay for your crimes. And that in no way diminishes God's goodness. And he says this. He says, imagine, if you will, if one of these men who's committed atrocities, right, and killed thousands of people at a concentration camp, imagine he pleads guilty, all the evidence is there. He says, yes, I did it. He comes before the tribunal there in Nuremberg, and they see the evidence, they hear his confession, and they say, you know what, Uh, you killed tens of thousands of people at Buchenwald concentration camp, um, and you have done horrendous crimes, medical experiments, things that we can't even mention, they're so horrendous. But you know what? I'm a really good judge. Because I'm such a good judge, off you go. 
You can go. Don't worry about it. Now, if that made the paper the next morning and people read that, would they say, what a good judge? Isn't that great? Like, he let all the Nazis off and just said, don't do it again. Would anyone think that was a good judge? Well, I would hope not. I'd imagine if it was a loved one of yours that was killed at a concentration camp. So my family came from Russia. My grandfather was the first one born in America, and they were all Jewish. No, our family wouldn't have read that and said, it's a good judge. No, because part of being a good judge is executing proper justice. Amen? And what we see here is Jesus is reminding them, I know you're about to kill me and cast me out, but don't think that you won't stand before a holy God. And so judgment then um, is, uh, is part of who God is. Then we see a last thing. We're going to tie this back into judgment so we don't leave thoroughly depressed. And it's this, that in the parable of the vineyard, we witness the grace of God. Amen? In the parable of the vineyard, we witness the grace of God. And it's one little word, and we could easily miss it, but it's really, really important to every person in this room, except potentially Ben. And it's about Gentiles. And it's this, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants, but then watch this. He's not going to destroy the vineyard. Why would he do that? He's going to give the vineyard to someone else. He's going to give the vineyard to someone else. And so, uh, remember our cast of characters here. Do you remember who the others were? Yep, Gentiles, right? Who's a Gentile? You are. I am. We are Gentiles, right? Ben now is. Amen, right? And so we're, we're, we're Gentiles. Here's, here's the beautiful thing. And there's so many rich, rich, rich Bible verses about this, about how God called out the nation of Israel. God chose them to proclaim his good news to the nations. We see that all through the book of Psalms, that God chose a people for himself, that they may proclaim his goodness and salvation to the nations, right? Psalms is loaded with that. They eventually said no thank you to the mission. They turned down the Savior who called them. And so God the Father says, listen, I still want a people for myself. And so if you don't want me, I'll find someone who does. Right? And here are some beautiful verses about that. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 28, 28, very end of the book of Acts. He says, so I want you to know that this salvation from God has also been offered to the Gentiles, and then he speaks a prophetic word here. He says, and they will what? Accept it. I know they will. Why? Because we're here. Amen? You and I are here. We've accepted it. Like that, oh, when I prepared this, like I was just crying when I read it. I was just like, oh, Lord, thank you that you just didn't like throw the whole plan away and say enough of it, and you didn't just do another Noah kind of thing and just say, I'm done with humanity, and so I'm just going to destroy everybody. Instead, he looked down, and the nation of Israel rejected him, and so he said, you know what? I'll just make the offer to someone else. Now, he's not done with Israel. He's not done with Israel. He still loves them. They are still his chosen people, his chosen nation. I believe the Bible clearly teaches that, and I believe in the last days that God's going to do a new work of revival among the Jews. I believe that. But for now, praise the Lord, we're part of the family. Amen? We are adopted into the family. Uh, we'll finish with this. Romans 11, 11 and 12. This is, this is meat and potatoes right here. He says, Did God's people, Israel, stumble 
and fall beyond recovery. This is about the Jews rejecting Jesus. Of course not. They were disobedient. So God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people, meaning the Jews, to become jealous and to claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will receive when they finally accept it. It's a word of prophecy. They will accept it. Acts 28, 28, the Gentiles will accept it. Romans 11, 11 and 12, one day the Jews will accept it. And don't miss what Paul says here. Paul says, look how the world has been blessed because of the church. And the world has been blessed by the church, right? We're not perfect and we have, you know, blemishes and all, but the world has been changed. You know, just go home and Google George Mueller, right? See how the world has been blessed, how orphanages, nurse hospitals, but pretty much everything good in the world that's been created. Unfortunately, now the government runs most of it. Most of it was started by the church, by people who love Jesus, right? And, and so don't miss what he says. The Gentiles said yes, and look how the world's been blessed. How much greater will the world be blessed when the nation of Israel accepts Jesus Christ as their Messiah? Amen? And one day they will. So here, here's the good news. We see the grace of God. That grace of God is offered then to the Gentiles, but it's still offered to the Jews. And one day, just as we have embraced it, they will. And the world will be blessed. The Bible says God blesses the nation that blesses Israel. That's what it says. Politics aside, that's what the book says. And so I want us to leave thinking about this God who is patient with us, this, this God who loves us, this God who stands in judgment, and yet because of his grace, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, church? And so uh, I, I, I have a good friend, Iftikhar, most devout Muslim I've ever met. And Iftikhar and I were speaking one day and I asked Iftikhar, Iftikhar, what will happen to you when you die? I said, because I know you pray five times a day. He does, I mean wakes up in the middle of the night fervently, faithfully praying and reading his Quran and doing all those things. Siddiftakar, when we we had actually went to a funeral together, a Muslim funeral at the city mosque in Birmingham, Birmingham Central Mosque. And so riding home, I said, Iftikar, when you die, what'll happen? He says, I don't know. I said, Well, will you go to paradise? And he said, Inshallah. It means if it's God's plan. I said, well, wait a minute. If you've done all the stuff, no inshallah, like, don't you get in? He said, I won't know till the, till the day happens. I can't know. And then he said, what about you? Well, if the car, after what you've just said, what I'm about to say is going to sound extremely arrogant. But I want you to know that if we crash the car right now, and I die, the second my heart beats its last, I will be in heaven with Jesus and all the saints. He said, how can you know that? I said, I know it, friend, because it's not based on what I've done. It's based on what Jesus did on the cross. And I now stand under no condemnation because I am in Christ Jesus.
He said, wow. And I said, wow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, wow. Lord, I, I would be the first to confess that if, if I was someone in this story, I would be one of the farmers. I'd probably be one of the baddies. For Lord, there is nothing good in any of us. Your word says that none are righteous, no, not one. Your word says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But thank you, Jesus, that you have been patient with us, that you have lavishly poured your love out upon us and to us. And thank you, Jesus, for your amazing grace. And thank you, Jesus, that for those of us who know you and love you, that we, uh, there is no uh, condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus and all the blessings of heaven are ours, not because of what we've done, but Jesus, because of what you've done and who you are. And thank you, Jesus, that one day we will stand before you in judgment, but we stand not in fear, but we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, that we will stand clothed in your righteousness, and that we belong to you. And so heaven and all its blessings belong to us. So we praise you and thank you. Jesus, we live in a city, we live in a community, we live in a culture uh, full of people who daily choose to reject you, some who even make a mockery of your name. Yet, Lord, thank you that you are patient with them and you love them nonetheless. And Lord, forgive us when we grow impatient with unbelievers. Forgive us for when we grow unloving towards unbelievers. Help us to love them, to be patient with them, and to treat them as you do, Jesus. And I just finally want to pray, Lord, that if there's one here this morning who's never known you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, and maybe the idea of death and judgment is absolutely terrifying. Thank you, Jesus, that your offer of salvation is for all of us. I pray that before we leave that they would speak to Grant or myself or someone else that they might know how they can know you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.